Well, praise the Lord, everybody. You know, as, as I was uh, getting ready for this message, sometimes things just bring things to your, to your mind, things you haven't thought about for a long time. And uh, when I was a little kid, my, my mother used to read to me before, before I would go to sleep. I mean, I was probably 17, 18 at the time. I was just young. But, but we, used, we, used to have, we used to have these, these books that were the Berenstain Bears. And I, I hadn't thought about those for a long time. And it wasn't too long ago, <clears throat> I was traveling around Ohio, visiting different places as I like to do. And I stopped to visit an antique store. And I was in this antique store looking around, and they had a section of kids' toys and kids' books and things like that. And in this store, they had the Berenstain Bear books. And I was not very happy about that because I am not an antique. I am not that old. And I grew up with these as a kid. I mean, those are fairly modern books. I don't think they had any place being in an antique store. However, they had, they had one of those uh, books, and it was, it was called uh, Learning About Strangers or something along those lines. And the, the point of the book was there was, you know, the two, the two kids, and the, the boy would just go out and talk to everybody, and I, I think... Somebody had, a, if I remember correctly, somebody had a model plane that they were flying or something like that. And they said, well, if you want to come over and take a look at it. And the boy just followed him and went to see. And his sister, on the other hand, was scared of everything. She wouldn't talk to anybody because she was afraid of strangers. And the point of the book was to learn you have to be, you have to be cautious around some people, but then there's other people that it's, that it's okay to, to follow and go with and that are probably okay. <clears throat> and based on that theme, I want to talk for a few minutes tonight on the subject, follow me. My, my passage is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> it says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway they left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them... And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. These, these particular passages I always found interesting. <clears throat> Just the fact that here were these men going about their business, their day-to-day, -day, what they always did. And then here comes Jesus and just says, follow me. Now, he gave them a little bit of context. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But, but that's not really a real clear, like, what, what does that really mean? Like, why do you want me to follow you? 
And I got thinking about why, what you need, you know, that would make you want to follow somebody. And there may be other things, but I, I, thought, of, I thought of three things that would cause you to follow somebody. One being you recognize that they have authority. The second one being you have some sort of a relationship with them. You at least know who that person is. And the third thing being they have an important purpose. You understand the purpose for why they want you to follow them. So you don't have to have all of those things. For example, you know, if you were walking down the street and you saw a police officer in uniform and he said, hey, follow me, I want to I talk to you. You may, not, you may not know who he is. You may not have any kind of relationship with him. You may not know what he wants to talk to you about. But you're still willing to go with him because you recognize the authority that he has as a police officer. On the other hand, you know, if, if I'm in here in the church and Brother Cawthorn or somebody comes up and says, hey, follow me, they may not have any particular kind of authority in this building or anything like that. But I at least know who he is. I have kind of relationship with him. It's not the same as a complete stranger coming up to you and saying, hey, follow me. Or if somebody came running up to you and said, hey, follow me. There's a baby trapped in this hot car over there. We got to get it out or it's, it's going to die. Well, I'm, they may not have any type of authority. I may not know who they are, but I recognize there's an important purpose. There's a reason that they want me to go with them. So you have to have one of those things or more if you're going to follow somebody. I thought about, you know, if, if I was sitting over here and, and pastor walked up and he says, hey, follow me. And he just started walking out. Well, I recognize he's the pastor of this church. He has authority around here. Hopefully, you know, you recognize the authority. If I came up to you and said, hey, you know, I, we're going to paint these walls neon green over here. I need you to help me out with that. Hopefully somebody would say, did you run this by the pastor? Did you? Because I have no authority, but we recognize he's got authority here over those kind of decisions and things like that. So if he says, follow me, I'll follow him. And, but as I'm following him in this building, my mind is going, I wonder what the purpose is. Why is he wanting me to follow him? So if he goes out and walks up to the, starts walking up to the gym, in the back of my mind, I may be following him, but I'm thinking, well, maybe he wants me to set up some tables. Maybe he wants me to clean something. Maybe he needs something carried in. If he starts walking out the door, goes to his office, I'm thinking, maybe he needs to talk to me about something. Maybe I'm, maybe I did something wrong. Maybe he, he wants to you know, I don't know, maybe he wants to talk to me in private where we can't be overheard. I'm trying to figure out the purpose of why he has asked me to follow him. But if he starts walking out the back door and walking down the street and just starts walking up toward the court square, we're not going to go very far before I realize you're, you're out of your area of authority. What now I'm, I'm going to be asking question, why are we walking down the street? Where are we going what is the purpose for this? So all of these men that were in the middle of doing something on their own, 
they could have said, we're busy, we, we don't have time to go with you. But for some reason, something caused them to drop what they were doing and immediately follow Jesus. James and John were with their father, and none of them asked any questions. I, I mean, I've worked, I've been doing stuff with my father before, and if we were in the middle of doing something, and I just, some guy walks by and says, hey, follow me, and I just abandoned what we were doing and got up and walked off, I guarantee you my father would have some questions. Hey, where are you going? What, what about these nets here? What, when are you going to be back? How long are you going to be gone? There, there's going to be things that they're going to want to know. But Jesus didn't give a clear purpose. He didn't, he didn't say, follow me and uh, I'm going to turn you into preachers and I'm going to send you all across the world and you're going to speak to world leaders. And he didn't tell them any of that. He just said, follow me. And I think it's important that maybe they recognized that Jesus had some authority. And I think maybe they started to follow him because they recognized his authority. But there must have been something different about Jesus, that he wasn't just some random stranger that just said, hey, follow me, and they just dropped everything to follow him. He must have had some sort of authority. And I think maybe they started to follow him because they recognized his authority, but eventually they continued to follow him because of the relationship that they had developed with him. And, you know, when you and I are talking, when we say, follow me, generally, we're talking about a change of location. It generally means there's, I have something for you to see or do, and you can't do it from here, so I need you to get up and move to a new location so that I can show you whatever it is that I have to show you. But when Jesus called them, he wasn't just calling them to change locations. He was calling them to a transformation. He wanted to transform them from fishermen to fishers of men. And Jesus is still calling people today. He doesn't always tell you what he has planned for your life. He doesn't let you know his purpose, but maybe you recognize his authority. A lot of people, I think, come to church because they believe in God and they think maybe it's the right thing to do. I need to go to church. But hopefully somewhere along the lines, it transforms into the fact that you follow Jesus because you have developed a relationship with him. See, you can't hang around Jesus for very long before he starts to have an impact on your life. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? I want to take a look at the people that Jesus called, I want to see where they followed him to and what we can learn from them. It's, it's interesting to look at the occupations of the people that Jesus called. We know from the passage that we read, several of them were fishermen. But there was also, we know, a tax collector. There was also a zealot. And we're not maybe sure about the other occupations. It doesn't really tell us what the others did. But they were common people. They weren't uh, upper class, rich folks. And, you know, if I thought, if I was going to start a movement or try to, to change the world, if you will, I would probably start by going to the upper class. I'd try to get the, the rich merchants, maybe the politicians, the people that have influence. I would try to get those people following me. 
But Jesus was willing to go to the common folks and just open it up to anybody that wanted to follow him. Jesus gives equal opportunity to anyone. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, or if you're famous, or if you're completely unknown. The call is the same for everybody. It's entirely up to you how you choose to respond to this call. As I thought of that, I was thinking, well, you know, Jesus goes to the common folks, and then, you know, I'm a little sarcastic sometimes, and I was like, well, that, that doesn't bode well for you if you happen to be rich and influential and famous because Jesus went to the common folks. But then I also remembered the story that came to mind about the rich young ruler who also received a call from Jesus to follow him. But he wasn't willing to give up his possessions to go with Jesus. But the call was still the same. Jesus called him, sell all you have and follow me. And often when I think about following Jesus, the thing that comes to mind is, wouldn't it have been neat to be there and see all the miracles that Jesus did, all the amazing things? But those miracles weren't done just to impress the disciples. The miracles were done to teach a valuable lesson. They were part of the transformation process. So I want to take a look at some of the miracles that Jesus did. The first thing we find is that the disciples followed him to Cana. Cana was the site of Jesus' first miracle. This was where he turned water into wine. I thought, I thought that was interesting for a first miracle, turning water into wine. That's, that's an, in, an impressive miracle for sure, but at the same kind, it doesn't really stand out as that amazing. I mean, you could, you could kind of explain it as, you know, maybe magicians do that same kind of trick. You know, it wasn't, didn't really have a huge impact on somebody's life. I mean, when he did things like raising the dead, casting out demons, healing the lame and the blind, those things had a huge impact on somebody's life. If you had been blind all your life and all of a sudden Jesus made it so you can see, that would change your life. That would change the way you do things. It would have a huge impact on your life. But the first miracle of turning water into wine doesn't seem on the same level as those other miracles that Jesus did. See, I have, I have been to parties before where they have run out of my favorite drink. Maybe I was drinking a Pepsi and I went back to the cooler and they were out of Pepsi. And I didn't just storm out. I'm never coming back to this party again. This is outrageous that they don't have Pepsi. I just went in and got whatever they had. Maybe it was a Dr. Pepper or a Mountain Dew. Maybe I got a sweet tea. If things were really bad, I may have even resorted to getting a Coke if I had to. But... It, but I, you know, it, it, the point being that it didn't ruin, you know, it, for the people that were having this party, maybe it would have been an embarrassing situation for them at first if they ran out of wine at the party. But years down the road, five, ten years when they had kids, it would have just been a funny story that they would have told their kids on how on their wedding day 
they ran out of wine at the wedding, it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. See, I personally hate weddings because I have never had good luck with weddings. My, my nephew got married, and so I, he asked me to be in the wedding, and I rented the tuxedo and got all dressed up, and I'm getting ready to walk down the aisle. We'd been up all day. We'd been getting ready, getting things ready. We got to the church. Everything was going fine. And as I'm getting ready to walk down the aisle, I go to button my coat, and the button pops off my coat and goes rolling down the aisle. And, just, and so the, they were taking pictures and things afterwards, and the lady says, button your tuxedo. I said, I can't button my tuxedo. So I had to stand there and try to hold it shut for all the pictures. I'm standing there. It's, it was a terrible situation. My niece got married, and they said, will you be the usher in the, in the wedding? And they said, all you have to do is take people to their seats when they come in, and then when the bride walks up the aisle, you know, before she comes up, you run up, and they had a white runner. It was on a roll, and they said, you have to take it down the aisle so she can walk up on this. I said, it sounds like a pretty simple task. I can, I can do that. So the day of the wedding came, I walked down with the other usher, and we got the runner before my niece comes up, and we started to pull it back, and it was on a roll, and it got tangled up in the ropes that were on it. And we couldn't, so we're sitting there messing with it, and they're, they're playing the wedding march music, and we would get it unwrapped, and we would go two or three feet, and it'd get tangled again. And we'd be sitting there messing with it, fighting with it, and we'd go a little bit farther, two or three feet, and it'd get tangled again. And the whole way down the aisle, about halfway down the aisle, you know, the, the music just keeps going on and on. The person kept repeating it, and we're trying to fight this runner to get it to go down. And I'm about to say, I'm just going to leave it here. She doesn't need the runner. She can just walk down the carpet like everybody else does. But it ended up, we got about halfway down the aisle, and it finally, finally went. And, and the rest of it worked out fine. I was at a wedding in Indonesia with my aunt and uncle. And, of course, I stood out in Indonesia because I'm in Asia, and the Asian people were kind of short compared to me. So I tended to stand out when I walked into a room anyway. Everybody turned around and said, oh, look at the big guy that's coming in there. And we walked in, and there were these steps to walk down to, to the, where we were sitting. And they were, they were wide steps, and I was in the middle of them, and my aunt was in front of me. And as I'm walking down the steps, my foot slips out from underneath me, and I punt my aunt's purse down the stairs and I fall, and I busted my hand open, and I was bleeding, and it was bad because everybody turned when I came in, and they were like, who's the big guy? And then they were like, where'd the big guy go? Because <laughs> he just disappeared all of a sudden, and I had to pick myself up off the floor, and then I had to go get it patched up. But you know, none of those things, as embarrassing as they were, they didn't have a tremendous impact on my life. It, it didn't make a huge difference if they would have happened or they wouldn't have happened. It, it wouldn't have made a difference. But I think the fact that Jesus chose to do this for his first miracle shows that he cares about the small things in our lives. If Jesus only did big miracles, we might feel like we had to wait until there was a crisis before we reached out to him. And, you know, I, I can give an example from my personal life my job can be kind of stressful sometimes. I work in, in fraud strategy. We're trying to stop 
fraudsters. From, and last year, we, we were $50 million over budget because we had so many fraud attacks. So every day we were going in and it was meetings on the calendar and, and they would come to us. The, the CEO wants to know why we miss these accounts. The vice president wants to know what's going on with these accounts. And we would get assignments and we would have, and they'd be questioning us by the end of the day. What'd you find? What did we do? And it was one thing after another and it was, it was stressful. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, this is my occupation. This is what I have chosen to do. You know, I can handle this and it's, it's not that big a deal, especially when you consider some of the things that other people in our church have gone through, right? We've got people that have had surgeries. We've got people that are in the hospital. We've got people that have had fires, that have had sickness, that all these major events that have gone on that it's like you hear about that and you're like, they really need prayer. Then you hear about somebody, oh, I got stress at work. Eh, you can deal with that. It's not really that big of a deal. But I started uh, in the mornings before I would... I would go to work. I would just say a little prayer. It wasn't an hour and a half, two-hour prayer meeting. I was just, you know, Lord, I've got this meeting with the bosses today. You know, if you could give me favor with the boss, give me wisdom to know how to do the job, just help me with what I'm going through at work. And all of a sudden, things just started to, to work a little bit smoother at work. Things started to calm down, to go a little bit easier. The meetings became a little less stressful. And then here... About a week or so ago, we had our end-of-year reviews, and I was like, oh, my boss is going to tell me, oh, here's all the things you need to work on, here's all the things that we've missed, here's all the things that you've done wrong. And so he called me, he says, hey, I'm going to call you in a few minutes, and I, I want to talk to you. And so I, I said a little prayer, Lord, hope, hope this meeting goes well, and let everything run smoothly. And, and when, when he got on, he says, I want you to know, he says, you have grown so much over the past year. He says, you have really excelled at your job. You've taken, taken things. He says, I'm giving you the top ranking that I can give somebody. Here I was expecting maybe to go in and, and hear bad news or, or get chewed out for different things and ended up, it all ended up working out okay. But it just goes to show that Jesus cares about the small things in our lives as well as the big things that we face. But the disciples also followed Jesus to Capernaum. This is where Jesus did a lot of his bigger miracles. Jesus shows in Capernaum that he's a compassionate healer that cares about people's physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. It was in Capernaum that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And I put in my notes, don't make any jokes about mother-in-laws because there may be mother-in-laws in the audience and I was, I'm trying to behave myself. But Peter's mother-in-law was in, in bed sick with a fever and Jesus healed her and she got up and began to minister to the guests. Jesus showed that his power extended to physical ailments as well. It shows that Jesus cares about people. But he didn't just heal just to show off his power. He healed for a purpose. It wasn't just because he didn't want her to suffer. But her healing was directly connected to a purpose. After she got healed, she got up and she began to minister. And she didn't just, uh, you know, it wasn't just uh, so she could get up and, and do her own thing. 
And I think Jesus didn't save us. He didn't heal us, deliver us, just so we can say, well, I feel better, and I'm, now I'm going to go do my own thing. But the entire purpose is so that we can minister to others. Her testimony in the story caused them to bring sick people to Jesus, but it also caused them to bring people that were possessed of the devil. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of a huge jump to go from Jesus can heal somebody of a fever to Jesus can heal somebody that's possessed of the devil. But I remember the story in the Bible about the, the demon-possessed man that lived in the tombs. He was, possessed people were probably cast out beyond hope, no real compassion for him. People felt like there's nothing that we can do for them. But maybe when they saw the compassion that Jesus had toward Peter's mother-in-law, they thought if Jesus cares enough to heal a fever, maybe he'll care enough to take care of my need. Maybe he'll care enough to take care of this person that's possessed or needs healing. And as they came to Jesus for healing, they came to the house and there was Peter's mother-in-law ministering to all of them. Also in Capernaum, it was where they lowered the lame man through the roof. You know the story, they couldn't get to Jesus because he was in the building and they were, their crowd was there. And so they tore up the roof and lowered this man down in front of Jesus. And I thought, Jesus could have gotten awful mad about that. He could have said, hey, you could have just waited until I left the building. You know, you don't go around just destroying people's roofs. But Jesus showed compassion and he healed. But more importantly, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. The skeptics ask, who can forgive sins but God? And I thought maybe Jesus was looking ahead to the church age and he didn't want the disciples chasing miracles. He wanted them to realize the purpose of the miracles was to get people saved. It was also in Capernaum that the centurion's servant was healed. The Roman centurion sent people and said, my servant's sick, he needs a healing. And I thought the Romans were the Jews' oppressors. They had taken over their land Jesus could have said, I'm not doing anything for you. But maybe Jesus was looking ahead to the day when the Holy Ghost would be poured out on the Gentiles. And he wanted the disciples to know that he could help anybody, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their politics or their religion. He knew that he would be sending the disciples into Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he wanted them to know that he would respond to anybody that called to him in faith. And as the disciples began to follow Jesus, they began to undergo a transformation. Maybe it was unbeknownst to them at first. Maybe they didn't realize it, but over time, they were slowly becoming more like Christ. But it wasn't always just fun and get to see Jesus do all these cool miracles Sometimes they found themselves in dangerous situations. Like when they found themselves on the Sea of Galilee, they were in the middle of the sea and a storm came up. And Jesus was sleeping in the boat. And they run and they wake him and they say, don't you care that we perish? 
and Jesus calmed the storm. And they learned that Jesus does, in fact, care what you're going through. He does, they learned that they could trust him in the chaotic situations of life. I wonder how many times after that event, maybe when they were, you know, after Jesus had gone back to heaven, maybe when they were in the church age and they were undergoing persecution and they had to flee, how many, how many times did they go through unexpected, maybe chaotic situations that they weren't prepared for? And they looked back on that day and said, if Jesus can get us through that storm, he can get us through anything. And sometimes we have unexpected events that we can't plan for. Sometimes it seems like our world is suddenly thrown into chaos. But God wants us to know that he cares what we're going through. And he has the power to deliver us through life's storms. Another miracle that Jesus did was the feeding of the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. The disciples had followed Jesus into a desert place. The people followed them and they didn't have enough food, so Jesus fed them with a meager supply. They learned that day that Jesus was not only a healer, that he was not only a deliverer, but he was also a provider. And when we go through situations where it doesn't look like we have enough to make it on our own, God has a way of providing for our needs. He can take what's insufficient and make it more than enough. The passage of Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 32, I think kind of sums that up. It says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. I imagine, I, you know, I never really thought about it before, but when the, the, the church began to be persecuted and the disciples had to flee, I, and not only the disciples, but the Christians and all were going to different cities. Uh, you know, maybe they, I wonder if they probably didn't have time to pack up all their belongings and take everything with them. If they were fleeing for their lives, they probably didn't announce to all their neighbors and friends that they were leaving. They, they may have just packed up everything pretty quick and left. And then they had to go to a new city without all the supplies, without everything that they had had before, and they had to start over again in a new city. Maybe it was in these situations that they realized we may not have been able to take all of our belongings, but we still have Jesus, and that's all that we need. Maybe they looked back, the disciples looked back on this event, and it was a reminder to them that Jesus is a provider. They also witnessed Jesus heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And they followed Jesus to the synagogue where this man came with a withered hand. And he had done miracles before. He had healed people before, but this time happened to be the Sabbath day. And Jesus was teaching the disciples that 
he wasn't bound by time. He wasn't bound by the traditions of men. He was showing them that whenever he encountered a need, he would answer that need. There were no restrictions on him. He never said, sorry, I'd, I'd like to help you, but I can't because it's not the right time or we're not in the right place. Sorry, I, you know, I, I think of uh, all the other gods, you know, that people have worshipped through the years, and it was always, well, these are the gods of the, the Greek, or these are the gods of the Romans, and, you know, if you get out of their area, they may not be able to help you. If you didn't give them the right sacrifices, they may not be able to help you. But Jesus was demonstrating that he wasn't, wasn't bound by those same restrictions. Anytime that we call out to God, he's able to answer our prayers. And then they also followed Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I almost left this particular one out because I thought the disciples slept through most of the event. Did they really learn anything from this? And I don't know that they knew it at the time, but Jesus was about to go through the most stressful time of his life. He went to the garden to pray before going to the cross. And maybe they didn't appreciate that in the moment. Maybe they didn't understand what they were learning. But when the church started to be persecuted, I'm sure they looked back at this event and remembered how Jesus prayed before the most stressful time in his life. Jesus was teaching them the importance of prayer, but he was also teaching them how to handle persecution. See, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that, the, that when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of, of one of the servants. And, you know, if, if I, I think if I was Jesus, uh, you know, maybe I say, hey, you know, you shouldn't do that. I understand it. I've got to go to the, the cross and everything. But in the back of my mind, I'd probably be thinking, it serves you right that you'd get your ear cut off. They should have cut your head off. I'm, I'm not as good a Christian as Jesus was. I'm still working on it. I, I realize that. But Jesus showed love and compassion to those that persecuted him. In spite of the fact that he knew that this man was about to take him to, un, to do the cruelest torture that they could put somebody through, he still reached down and picked up that ear and healed that man. And later the church would experience tremendous growth when they showed the same love and compassion to others in the middle of their persecution. Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 42, it says, And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And I thought if, if I had been in, in their shoes, if I had been beaten and, and thrown into prison for something that I didn't do, I would be real tempted to say, fine, you can just face the judgment on your own. You know, I, I, I think I would probably relate better to Jonah 
maybe than some of the early Christians when they said, go to Nineveh. And he says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. They deserve the judgment that they're going to get. But the early church still, in spite of the fact that they were persecuted, they still tried to reach them and preach Jesus to the very people that persecuted them. In closing, there was nothing remarkable about the disciples. After they decided that they were going to follow Jesus, he ended up changing their lives. I think there's one verse that sums up the entire thing, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And I think that's the entire point of following Jesus is that hopefully people will be able to look at you and look at your life and say, I can tell that person has been with Jesus. And Jesus is still calling people today to follow him. And the purpose is still the same. He wants to transform your life and he wants to turn you into a witness for him. The goal of every Christian should be that when they look at you, they can tell that that person has been with Jesus. And I think for many of the miracles, many of the situations that the disciples found themselves in, I think there are many of us in this room that can also say we've been through some difficult times. We've been through situations that we have need to rely on Jesus in our lives. And, you know, maybe you don't have the physical being of Jesus here that you can say, I saw Jesus go over and lay his hand on somebody and they were healed. Maybe we don't, didn't get to witness that part of it. But we've certainly witnessed miracles and things that God has done in our lives. And as we go through situations and we think, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how this is going to work out. And we begin to pray and then all of a sudden everything comes together for us. All of a sudden things work out. All of a sudden we get our healing. That's building our faith as we realize that there's, there's nothing that God can't do. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by location. And I think the transformation process is the same for us as it was for the disciples. The same that they go, had to go through, we also have to go through. And the longer we follow Jesus, the longer we walk with him, he begins to do that transformation process in our lives. So if we could all stand in dismissal, I just want to pray in closing tonight. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to be here today. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had to hear your word. Lord, we ask that you would go with us. Lord, help us to follow you and that you would, we would allow you to do the transformation process in our lives that you desire to do to make us more like you so that people would begin to look at us, they would begin to say, those people have been with Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. We thank you for all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name.